All right. Well, there is a title to this sermon. You want to get that, Andy? That's Miss Memory calling. Uh, there is a title to this sermon. I guess it, it's not up there somewhere, but it's called The Gospel Changes Everything. The Gospel Changes Everything. And that's really a lot about what uh, Philippians is about. So, welcome to Philippians. So, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever received in the mail, which is rare these days, right? Have you ever received in the mail a heartfelt thank you letter or a card? Like, like a legit one. You ever, so I do a lot of funerals for the funeral home of people who don't have churches. And I regularly get really heartfelt handwritten thank you cards in the mail after I'll do something like that. Um, but there is one member of our family. And where, where are my children today? I'm trying to say they're all over the place. We got one member of our family that is diligent about sending a thank you card. If you give this man anything, you're going to get a thank you card. Who is that, Ben? No, I'm talking about our broader family. Grandpa Adrian, that's right. Ben recently, last time we were there, gave him a journal. And uh, uh, when we got home, in our mailbox was a handwritten thank you card from Bob Adrian. Uh, Bob is the king of thank you cards. Um, and, and he's always kind of kind of um, brought me under a little bit of a conviction about that. Um, and usually when I get one from him, it, it has included in it his most recent church bulletin, and he's expressing his gratitude. So when you get something like that, how does that make you feel? Right? Why? Why does that make you feel good? You know, it's appreciated. It's at least acknowledged, and it's appreciated, right? So, um, Philippians. I want you to think of this letter. Philippians, we're not going to call it a book. It's a letter. This is basically Paul's heartfelt thank you letter to his easiest and favorite church. This is the church that gave him the least amount of problems, almost none. Um, and he, he, had, he loved these people. It was, it was his favorite church. And they had blessed him with a, with a large financial gift in order to help him survive in prison. Um, prisons in those days, you had to pay your own way. And if you didn't, they literally set you outside the prison in shackles to see how long you would last with no support. So it wasn't like prison today. So they, they got a really substantial gift and sent it by the hand of a guy named Epaphrodites, Epaphrodites who we'll, we'll learn about him as we go on. So today, I will endeavor to impart to you, as the title says, everything you need to know about Philippians and why. All right? So if you've got your outline this morning, um, we're going to jump right in. So to accomplish that, let me, let me do it this way. Let me break it up this introduction in three sections, and I think that will serve us well today. So um, in the first section, I want to tell you about the backstory of the city. That's important. There's some stuff you need to know about Philippi itself and when this took place. Then I want to tell you about the birth of the church. Matter of fact, let me give you a heads up here about the birth of the church. You're going to actually need your Bible today. There, I did not put it on the slides. Um, I think we rely too much on that. I want you to actually take your old-fashioned Bible and open it to, to Acts chapter 16. That's where we're going to spend our time when we talk about the birth of the starting of the church at Philippi. And then to wrap it all up, once you understand the city itself, a little bit about its history, and then the, how the church came to be, I want to give, share with you um, a blueprint of this correspondence between Paul and his favorite church. I want to kind of lay it out for you, and that's what the picture on the back side of your outline is about. And then as time allows, I want to foreshadow the, the big rocks or the big ideas of Paul's gospel-saturated, joy-soaked thank you letter to his favorite church. Did I mention they were his favorite church? <laughs> and you all are mine if, if you'd like to know. So let's pray, and we're going to jump right in this morning. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gospel that does change everything. Would you help me today to, to uh, get this out in a way that makes sense, that gets us excited about diving into your word, and more importantly, letting your word saturate us at the very core of who we are so it changes the way that we think and act. I pray that you would use these words to wake us up, 
to birth in us a thirst for you and to teach us to speak fluently the good news of your kingdom that has arrived. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me give you the backstory, the background of the city. All right? The background of the city. First of all, a picture will come up here. This city was named for this guy right here. I don't suppose you recognize him, but his name is Philip of, of Macedon. Anybody know? I actually asked my, I asked my oldest son because I, I thought I could catch him, and he knew. It really disappointed me that he knew the answer. Anybody know who Philip is? Philip, King Philip of Macedon? Who is he back here? Yes, sir. Amen. Our brothers from Jordan. Praise the Lord. He's the daddy of Alexander the Great, King Philip. And he, you can see, he was a dude not to be messed with. All right. So this is an old city uh, on the corner of the European continent, and it's named for King Philip. Now, here's, what, here's what's important here is um, there is a great major battle that was fought around 42 BC, and I'm going to share with you something that a historian wrote, and I, I found it very helpful. He says this, in 42 BC, Philippi became the famous place where Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the Roman Republic forces of Brutus and Cassius. And you'll remember, they were the assassins of Julius Caesar. Remember et tu, Brute? That, that whole thing. The victors settled a number of their veteran soldiers there and established Philippi as a Roman colony. We're going to see that in Acts 16. After the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, in which Octavian defeated Antony, more settlers, including some of Antony's disbanded troops and former supporters, were settled in Philippi by order of Octavian, who had then adopted the name Octavian Augustus. So he became the uh, Caesar of Rome, who renamed the colony after himself, and it finally became Colonia Iulia Augusta Philippensis. All that in Latin, of course. These settlers, along with some of the previous inhabitants, constituted the legal citizen body. Now listen to this. Philippi was given the highest privilege possible for a Roman provincial municipality, and it was called in the Latin the Ius Italicum, which basically means they were governed by Roman law. They were literally a mini-Rome. The citizens of this colony were granted Roman citizenship, which, by the way, you had to purchase anywhere else. It's like winning a lottery. Philippi itself was modeled after the mother city Rome. It was laid out in similar patterns. The style and architecture were copied extensively, and even the coins were produced uh, produced in the city bore Roman inscriptions. The Latin language was used, the citizens of wore Roman dress, and although not the capital of the province, Philippi was a leading city and an important stopping place on the Via Ignatia, the recently constructed military road linking Byzantium and the Adriatic ports that led to Italy. So this gives you an idea of the background of this city. And remember that it's settled by a lot of army veterans, Roman army veterans and officers. That's going to become important here in a minute. All right. So the citizens, as I said, were automatically granted uh, Roman citizenship, which was a big, big deal. Here's the deal with that. They were exempt from property tax and, poll, and the poll tax. That's like retiring to Florida from Connecticut, which your brother just recently did, my cousin Clint. A lot of people retire in Florida because there's no state tax there. So if you lived in Philippi, you didn't have to pay the poll tax or property tax. Pretty good place to live, right? The language was Latin and not Greek. As I said, the dress was Roman, architecture, layout of the city. It was a mini Rome in Europe. Just think of it that way, a mini Rome in Greece, in the edge of Greece. So that's the, that's the background of the city. Let me talk about the birth of the church for a minute, and that's where you're going to need to open your Bibles to um, Luke's historical account in the book of Acts. We know that Luke wrote Luke, obviously, but he also wrote the book of Acts, which a couple interesting notes about that as you're turning to Acts 16. Um, Luke was a Gentile, not a Jew. That's a big deal. He was a physician. And actually, when you do a word count of Luke and Acts, he actually wrote more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. So that's interesting. And he's Paul's companion on this trip. 
um, as we'll see here in just a little bit. So really, uh, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 16, it came about by two acts of obedience. Uh, the first is submission to the Holy Spirit in your outline, and then the sharing of the gospel. So these two acts of obedience birthed this church in this, in this um, interesting city of Philippi, uh, probably in the early, late 40s, early 50s AD. So think about that. Jesus has only been uh, resurrected, you know, not, not terribly long. So this is an early, early church in church history. So the submission to the Spirit and the sharing of the gospel. All right. So notice this. Let's pick it up in, in Acts 16. Look at verse number 6. Now, when they, now they there is four people. It's Paul. We know how the letter opens. Paul and who? Timothy. Paul and Timothy. So Timothy's with him. He picks him up earlier. And a guy named Silas. And you all remember why Silas was there? And not Barnabas? They had a big disagreement. Yeah, about, about um, John Mark. Yeah, so, Mark, so Barnabas takes Mark and Paul takes Silas. Now we look at that and it's disappointing. Like, God, two good guys. Why, why such a disagreement? So much so that they, they, they split their company. But here's the reality. The gospel goes in two directions. That's not a bad thing. So here's, here's a principle, church. God uses stuff that we don't understand to further his purposes. That's a big, that's a big takeaway today. Okay, God uses stuff we don't, I don't understand what's going on in Ukraine today and Russia. But I know that God is using it right now to further his purposes in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? So, that's an idea. So when they, verse 6, had gone through... Um, Pull up that next slide. As I read these places, there's going to be a map that comes up here. Um, and you'll see some of these cities on there. When they had gone through uh, Fergia and the region of Galatia, that's over here. See Lerby, Der Derby and Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. That's all over here in this area. They had gone through there. They were, for listen to this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So what you see over here on this side is Asia. It's Asia Minor. Um, and the Holy Spirit forbade them to preach the gospel. Isn't that weird? And he goes on to say, verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, you can see that there, just south of Troas, they tried to go into Bithynia. So they tried to go north and east. Um, but, listen to this, the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came on to Troas. So they go north to Troas. And there in Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is just across the water there, uh, stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran straight, uh, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, which is a small island in the middle. And the next day we came to Neapolis, which is the port city. And from there, it's just a, sm a short journey, northwest, a few miles, and they landed in Philippi. So, we're going to stop right there. I want to say something. Do you find it interesting the Holy Spirit said, they're, they're going on a gospel missionary trip. They say, all right, we're going to go to the northern section of Asia Minor. We got the postal route in the south. That's Galatia, Galatia Ephesus, all those churches. Now we're going north. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, no you're not. I don't know how that worked, but the Holy Spirit put the kibosh on that. He said, you absolutely may not even speak the gospel there. And so they tried to go to another place, to, to Bithynia. Nope, can't speak the gospel there either. So they go to Troas, closer to the coast, and just then, that night, God gives Paul a vision. Guy from Macedonia across the pond, um, the continent of Europe, says, please come and help us. They get up in the morning, they talk about it, and said, that, that, that vision, that dream was from God. They board a ship, and they, they hit 
Philippi. So here's a, here's a principle. I think I even put this in your outline. God often, in his providence, directs our life by closing doors. I want to say that again. How often does God in his providence direct us by closing doors? Shuts the door. I remember when we were in Florida, um, pastoring down there and, and, and in the vital ministry of the church there in Florida. Um, my father-in-law was still there. I started the church with him. My brother-in-law had come along and was, uh, was, was a wonderfully gifted partner in that ministry. Wonderful teacher of, of, of the word. And dad takes me out to lunch and says, I'm leaving. I'm taking my father's church in Kansas. The church is yours. I'm going to put you up. And I said, nope. God's laying on my heart. We're going back to Connecticut to start a church. I've already talked to some people. I got the wheels in motion. We're, we're going to Connecticut. That's really where I feel God's leading us. And he said, well, then I guess, I guess we'll have to talk to the church about John leading, my brother-in-law. And then when... Then, you know, he'll be in place for when you leave. So we were headed to Connecticut. So John became the, the lead teaching pastor. I worked with him there the whole while making plans. It was getting firmed up. And then I got a phone call from Elizabeth one day. It said, guess what? We're pregnant. And God put the kibosh on my plans. God used Ellie to change our plans from going to Connecticut to start that work. He shut the door. Um... And ultimately, that situation led us here 21 years ago. So does, God does what he's doing. How many of you, God has shut the door in your life to direct you? Don't go kicking down doors or looking for windows when God has shut them. He knows what he's doing. Even, fellows, if you read the biographies of these great missionaries, William Carey and Adoniram Judson, they wanted to bring the gospel somewhere other than where they ended up. And yet... God shut the doors. They made a little detour, as it says in Acts 16 on our little thing there, and God used them tremendously. So here's another principle. Stop worrying about your life plan and follow Jesus right now, right where you are. And I'm not going to lie to you. I had a hard time with that. Not that I was sad about having another baby, but I, all my plans, all of my dreams, out the window, God shut that door. And I realize I'm going to have to serve God right now, right where I am, and trust him for the difference. So stop living in the future and live in the now. Love Jesus now. It's easier to direct something that's moving. Here's the other thing. Macedonian calls. This, he gets his vision. This guy from Macedonia shows up in his dream, says, please come and help us. Yeah, I, I wonder this, saints. How many Macedonian calls do we miss every week? I think we do. Uh, I had one this week, hard to miss. I uh, walked into the restroom at school on Monday where I teach to the beautiful noise of someone vomiting violently in the stall next to me. <laughs> and it was one of our poor students. I mean, he, he was horribly ill. So I had to help him. We had to get that cleaned up and help them clean that up. And as we're standing in there, and I just feel so bad. All of a sudden, a conversation breaks out, and it's a Macedonian call. And this young man begins to share the sorrow of his heart and his disillusionment with life. And I get to share Jesus with him. Because of good people like Jennifer, who can take over a class of crazy boys, including her own and my son, and Angela, your son. <laughs> She took over that class so that I could speak to this young... It's a Macedonian... Brothers and sisters, God's given you Macedonian calls all week long. Are we answering them like Paul did? Now, let me tell you not only about the submitting to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit says no. We say, okay, detour. Let's talk about sharing the Gospels. Let's pick it back up there in verse number 9. And i got to try to find it here. So one negative about not having it on the screen. It's harder to see. Um, there we go, verse uh, 11. No, that's not it either. Yes. So, verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which was the foremost city of Macedonia, notice it says a colony. What kind of colony was this? Roman. And notice this. And we were staying in that city for some days. Now, it appears, I'm assuming that they got there on the first, towards the first beginning of the week. 
You spend several days there. The reason I say that is what happens next. And on the Sabbath day, what day was that for them? Saturday. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city uh, to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Now, it was, it, it was normal for, um, if there are any Jewish people around, they would be praying at the river on the Sabbath. Um, and so he went down there and said, hey, I haven't found any Jews. We've been here all week, haven't found any Jews. He Normally, Paul would go to a synagogue. Here's an interesting fact. Guess what? There was no synagogue. Um, it took 10 devout Jewish men to form a synagogue. What that tells us is there were not 10 devout Jewish men in Philippi. Remember, we're on the continent of Europe now. They crossed the, they crossed the, the sea, uh, a small portion of that sea, and now they're in Europe, and there's no appreciable Jewish population there. So instead, he goes down there and says, well, let's see if there's anybody. We sat down and we spoke to the women who were there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. So they go down to the, to the river to see, is there anybody praying down there? Now, I want you to notice something here, first of all. Uh, this is a Roman colony. Uh, another historian, Richard Mellick, said this. Apart from Rome, Philippi was the most Roman of all cities that Paul had visited. It's a very Roman city. Um, like I said, it was laid out like Rome. Matter of fact, they said if you were in Philippi and had been to Rome, you'd say, you know, this is familiar. This is just like being where? In Rome, right? Um, and, by, and I just want to say there, it reminds me, as Philippi was a mirror image of Rome, listen, your home should be a mirror image of heaven. Your life should be a, a little heaven on earth. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom what? Come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. You see, it says in there that uh, this was a colony, a colony of Rome. Rome is the faraway country, the faraway city, and they colonized Philippi with a bunch of their people. So they sent a bunch of their people there, and with their people came a lot of other things. Architecture, they built buildings that looked just like where? Rome. They wore the outfits that they wore where? In Rome. They spoke what language? Latin. Um, the coins were what kind of money? What kind of currency? Roman currency. When you were in, in Philippi, 800 miles from Rome, you swore you were in Rome. Here's the reality of that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think the church has gotten it wrong for far too long. We've been spending all of our time trying to get people to heaven when we are commanded to get heaven to people. Amen? Your kingdom come, your will be done where? Right here. God's plan was to colonize earth with the culture of heaven. And that's what we're supposed to be busy about. Your life should, should exude the culture of heaven. When people run into you, they should say, you know what? That person is so different, it's like they come from another place. Because God is colonizing earth with the culture of heaven. What happens in the home country? Uh, heaven, or in this case Rome, manifests in the colony. Is what is happening, is the culture of heaven manifesting, showing up in your life? That's part of what Philippians is about. So there's no synagogue, so Paul takes his team and he encounters these three charter members of the church at Philippi. Three charter members. The first one is a lady named Lydia. She's Asian. She's from Thyatira. She's wealthy. Seller of purple. Purple was big bucks. Very expensive. There are a lot of wealthy people um, in Philippi, there are a lot of slaves and poor people too. So uh, they go down to the river on Sabbath where, where any God-fearers would be worshiping. Now God-fearers were Gentiles, non-Jews, who feared the Jewish God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I want to make this clear. She was a God-fearer as a title, but she was not a Christian. She was not a disciple, a follower of Jesus. 
You got that? That's super important to understand. So we pick up the text there. They go down there. She's down there. Now a certain woman named Lydia, verse 14, um, heard us. They were preaching, open air preaching. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Now notice, underline this in your Bible. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What was Paul preaching? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ appropriated by faith and repentance and commitment. And how did this lady receive it? She thought it was a good idea and say that would work for me. Is that what, is that what the scripture says? No. God, the Lord, opened her heart to be able and gave her the ability, the desire and the ability to obey the gospel. The gospel is to be obeyed today through faith and repentance and the following of Jesus Christ. Beautiful theological statement here. God opened her heart the scripture says, notice what it says, to heed. You know what that word heed means? To hear and obey. How many of you have children that hear but don't always obey, right? right. Are you hearing me? Uh, but she heeded it. She obeyed it. And when, verse 15, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now notice, notice this. Who was baptized? Lydia and who else? What? Her entire household. Now this lady, as wealthy as she was, she probably had slaves. She also maybe had family. We don't know. But the whole, here's what I'm getting at. Jay Lordson. How long was this woman a follower of Jesus before she became an evangelist and, and went home and said, everybody here, there's a message you got to hear. Here's what just happened to me and it's going to happen to you today. <laughs> right? And the whole entire household is converted and baptized. So the excuse that, well, I haven't been a Christian that long, I can't share the gospel, is out the window. So we go on. Not only Lydia... She starts it off, but then we look in the next verse, in verse 16, we see a little slave girl. Now, it happened as we uh, went to prayer, same place, at that river, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This little girl followed Paul and us, us meaning Luke. Notice Luke is now saying us, because he's with Paul. Followed us, who... Um, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, why would a demon do that? Yeah. Because everybody knew she had a demon. And, it, and it's a way of actually uh, uh, turning people away from their ministry, not towards it. And this she did, notice what the scripture says, for how long? Many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed. Aren't you glad that Paul got annoyed? Because this Paul gets annoyed, I promise you. And Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, notice not to her, but to this, to this demonic spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now notice he doesn't yell at the spirit. Spirits aren't deaf. They can hear. He's calm. I command you to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men of Jews are exceedingly troubling our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Roman, to receive and observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? And when they had laid many stripes on them, so they literally beat them so hard that it tore the skin into the fascia, uh, the covering of the muscles in the back. They were torn open. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison. <laughs> he said, you're not getting out. 
and then he fastened their feet in the stocks. So now they're in this dungeon with their feet fastened in stocks, this dank dungeon, rats down there, and he's got them in the inner dungeon, the lowest part of the lowest. So there's probably foul water in there along with excrement, and they got these open, gaping wounds. They're in agony. What would you be doing? And I'd be saying, I want my phone call. I'm calling my lawyer, and you guys are in trouble. Right? He said they couldn't do that. Yeah, they could. Paul had an out. He, yeah, he's a Roman citizen, and they don't know it. And what they just did to him is illegal and could cause the same thing to be done to the, to the leaders. Read the rest of it. I don't have time today, but read the rest of it. That's what happens. So anyway, uh, no, that's not what they do. They instead put on a worship event for the entire prison, and they are singing hymns of praise to God. And all the prisoners are listening, and you know what happens. Uh, the, 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 the bars open up. Everybody's chains fall off. And sees our third guy, the, the Roman jailer. And uh, they're all loosed, and this guy jumps up, sees that everybody's loose, takes his sword, and is going to kill himself. That's an honor killing, an honor suicide. Because if the guys get out, he's, he's lost his job. And if you're an honorable Roman, you kill yourself rather than to have to make your fellow Roman soldier take your head off. You be a decent man with some honor, and you plunge your sword into your own heart. And he was getting ready to do that. And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. Everybody's here. Nobody's going anywhere. And he runs in and he says those famous words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, I'm not exactly sure what he meant. We read that, here we are in 2022, and we think, what must I do to come to Christ? I'm not sure if that's what he meant. He might have just meant, what do I got to do to get out of this thing with my head? I tend to think that's what he meant. He asked a question about saving his physical life, I believe. He received an answer about saving his eternal life. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your household. Amen. And he does. And notice what the scripture says. So he takes them home, still under his care. That's why he can take them home. He's, he, he's, he's still, they're still, they're still locked up. They're under his authority. But he takes them home and he dresses their wounds. But something happens when he gets home. Him and his whole house are what? Baptized. He becomes an evangelist the night he got saved. And we sit here and we have never shared the gospel with anybody. And we have been quote unquote saved for 30 or 40 years. I'm going to tell you something. You can go watch Sesame Street and it says one thing is not like the other. Either you are sharing the gospel or you are not a follower of Jesus. If you're not fishing, you're not following this guy just got saved. He goes home and says, let me tell you the gospel. Just changed my life. It's going to change yours too. You're going to obey it just like I did. The whole house gets baptized. So this is how the church started. The Lord opens her heart. She obeys the gospel. The demon comes out of this little girl. We presume she becomes a part of that church. And then a Roman jailer baptizes his whole family. So I have the question, how much do you have to know before you tell the good news? How long do you have to be a Christian? Apparently minutes. Apparently minutes. And so with these three unlikely charter members, the first church is planted on European soil. Brand new continent. So with all that backstory of the city and the birth of the church, let's take a peek quickly at the blueprint of this correspondence or letter. Let me give you real quick some themes. Some themes. So now Paul is writing. Let me tell you something. You've got to go read the rest of 16. I just Because of time, I just can't go. Please read the rest of this. It's amazing. So Paul hangs out a little bit, and they get the church started, and good things are happening. And then all of a sudden, uh, the thing happens with the jailer, and Paul has to leave. We don't know exactly how long they were there, but they were there long enough to really establish a healthy church with elders and, and, and deacons. And uh, when they find out Paul's a Roman citizen, the lead, the, <laughs> the leaders want him gone because this is, this is a mini Rome, and they know they broke Rome's big law. They're big on citizenship. They understand what that means. They say, you know what, y'all just go quietly, Paul says. Not on your life. You leaders, you come get us out of jail. Because we don't want anyone saying that we escaped. You need to own this. And they did. And so they leave and continue their missionary journey. This letter is written now 10 years later. So it's been a decade. Paul is now in prison. 
in, under house arrest in Rome. And as I said, you had to pay for your own food. You had to pay rent for that house. You had to pay the salaries of the guys that watched you. It was all on you. And if not, they lock you outside, see how long you last with no food and no help. Um, so Paul was dependent on people like the churches at Philippi to help him. And they did. So here's some themes. This doesn't make sense, but he's in jail. First theme is joy. The words joy, rejoice, or gladness appear 15 times in, 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 in the uh, 104 verses. Another theme is mindset or attitude. There's nine verses commend us to have the mind of Christ or to be like-minded or be of the same mind. Uh, so it's going to deal a lot with our attitude and our thinking and our mind. Um, another, another theme is fellowship, koinonia, Greek term. That's a business term. It's like two guys would get together. Uh, one guy would say, hey, I've got a product. And the other guy would say, uh, you got the product and skill and know how to do that. I've got the money to finance it. Let's koinonia. Let's get together and make business happen. So this word koinonia means, yeah, we, we all have gifts and we come together and koinonia, we make the kingdom expand. And it was working. And Paul is explaining how that works. We're doing life together. It's closely associated with unity, which is on the mind and heart of Paul here. Another word is the gospel. Matter of fact, the word gospel is mentioned more frequently in the letter to the, to the church at Philippi than anywhere else in Scripture. This is a gospel-saturated letter. It's all over. Um, and with that in mind, this phrase, this is not in your outline, but jot it down, the phrase, in Christ or in Jesus Christ, appears ten times. Ten times. That's a very common phrase for Paul. By the way, we love to talk about Jesus being in us, Christ, and Paul does say that Christ in you, the hope of glory. But did you know that for every time the, the New Testament says Christ is in you, it says ten times you are in Christ. That should be our thinking. Ten times as I is a ten to one ratio. And ten times in Philippians that phrase is used. And then this last one, the day of Christ, is used three times. In, in this letter. Why is that important? <laughs> this is pretty wild. Because the day of Christ, this idea of the end of history, when God blows a whistle, everybody out of the pool, it's over. Jesus is reigning forever and ever. That's only mentioned four times in the New Testament. Three of them are here. The other one's in Thessalonians, um, which, is, which is the same area. It's very interesting. Um, the Relevance of Philippians. Real quick, Philippians is very relevant. You know this book, even though you might not know that you know it. Look at all the life verses that come out of here. Uh, 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will what? Anybody? Complete it to the day of Christ. There's a day of Christ. For me to live is Christ, die is gain. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, um, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be known unto God. Philippians 4.13, we all know this. I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. By the way, the context of that is suffering. So you're welcome. And then 419, my God shall supply how much of your need? All of your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know there's so many life verses in Philippians. Um, is, is this first century letter relevant to us today? Well, let me ask you. Is this relevant? Uh, learn how to live out your faith in a hostile culture. Could you use that today? Uh, what about this? Joy is in Jesus Christ and not your circumstances. Would you like to learn how that plays out in your life? That's relevant. Uh, the meaning and purpose of life. It's answered in chapter 1, verse 21. Deep personal forging of sacred friendships. How many of you have sacred friendships around the gospel? We're going to talk about that tomorrow, or next Sunday. And then unity of Christ in the church context. And then lastly, in chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, right in the middle of that, is this beautiful first century doctrinal hymn that was sung by all of these early churches after Paul sent this letter out and it made its way around to the other churches. Now I want you to flip your outline over. All right, we're going to take just a few minutes and we're almost done. We're going to work, I'm going to actually let, let us view a video that's going to 
create this drawing that's in front of you and it's going to give us the blueprint or the layout of this letter it's a giant thank you letter of Paul to his favorite church so let's take a let's take a few minutes and listen to the layout and follow it along on the on the um, drawing side of your of your uh, outline Paul's letter to the Philippians the church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus's story. Mm. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. Amen. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians, and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But 
Through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the King of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel. Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. Amen. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and yeah. can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Amen. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his great his teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal, transforming encounter. And that's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. Isn't that well done? It's so good. That's why I take the time and carve it out in here. Because I find it so helpful. You've got a beautiful blueprint. So let me wrap up. Let's just take a second. Um, there's going to be more to write down in here. There's like two more than what's on, on your paper because I ran out of room. 
So, but real quick, here, one of the big rocks or big ideas uh, of, of this letter, and he kind of went over that, but let me just tell you what you can look forward to here. Number one is that advancing the gospel will cost us, but Jesus is worth it. Amen? This is full of military language, by the way, because there's so many ex-military in Philippi. It's contending for the faith, the defense of the gospel. Um, so we're advancing the gospel at all costs, but Jesus is worth it. Um, reminds me of the Moravian, the beginning of the, what launched the great Moravian missions movement. Two young men in their early 20s, John Dober and David Nitschman, sold themselves as slaves to a uh, Caribbean island overlord so that they could buy their passage there and live and work for him for the rest of their lives so that they could preach the gospel to the, to the hundreds of slaves that he had. He would let no missionary come, no pastor. He said no church will ever be planted on these shores. So they sold themselves into slavery and said, we will come and we will be your slaves so that they could share the gospel with those who had never heard. Their families gathered at the docks that day, and as the, ships were, the ship was unmoored and was, pulling, was drifting out away, said these two young men, um, as their parents and family were weeping, knowing they would never see them again, these two young men came to the rail, and they said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that launched the Moravian mission movement that God used to bring thousands and thousands of people to saving faith in Christ. It's going to cost you something. Here's another one, learning how to fight for joy. Learning how to fight for joy in hard circumstances. Anybody could use a lesson in that. How about this one, maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We're not going to always get along. Sometimes your brother or sister in Christ are going to annoy you. And sometimes that can, that can turn ugly. And, and cause division. We need to learn how to overcome that through the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. Becoming a Macedonian giver. As should be on the screen. Write this down. 2 Corinthians 2. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. Um, the Bible says that they gave beyond their ability to give. And then this last, uh, last two. Recognizing what gospel partnerships look like. Um, do you have gospel partnerships in your life? We're going we're to talk about our missionaries that we support and remind you of these people that we are in gospel partnership with. And then the last one is expanding the kingdom of God and exposing this to the world. These are the big rocks of Paul's letter. I'll close with this thought. The whole thing is, is centered around an a, a, a extremely generous gift taken up by people who didn't have it. And sent to Paul. And I close with this thought. The gospel alone liberates you to live a life of scandalous generosity. Only the gospel can free you from selfishness and allow you to live with a scandalous generosity. I want to be marked by that. And we're going to see that in Philippians. I'm going to pray. Courtney's going to come. And we're going to sing one last song together. And then the doxology. Have you enjoyed this, this opener to Philippians? I hope you're excited uh, to come. I hope, I hope you'll get in it this week. I want you to memorize the first two verses. And start working on memorizing. You can memorize this whole thing. You really could. Um, I want to ask her to come. I want to encourage you. I got in my hand. These are Courtney's notes. She did a really smart thing. Uh, besides marrying my son and coming into this wonderful family. 